Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Shalach Lecha, Send on Your Behalf. The address is Bamidbar, Numbers, chapter 13, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse 41. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on June 12th of 2006. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu et Torato. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the Universe. You've selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. This is the story of the ten spies who had no faith and the two who did. We're pretty much familiar with this story. We've grown up with it in our Sunday school lessons or if you attended shul all your life. This is certainly a parasha um, where your rabbi has expounded upon the fact that Twelve spies, one representative from each tribe, was sent in to reconnoiter, or spy out the land as it were. God, if you'll recall, um, uh, instructed Moshe to send the spies out. And so they weren't um, doing anything wrong. And so um, Joshua and Caleb were two of the spies, if you'll recall. They went in, they spied out the land, they saw that it was a good land, a spacious land, um, flowing with milk and honey, just like God had promised. Um, in fact, if you'll recall, uh, they saw the people as well. So they were able to, I, I, I like to imagine that, uh, that maybe they actually went and spied out Jericho. But um, what ends up happening is that when the twelve come back, you know, they spent, um, uh, let's see, uh, for every, they spent 40 days in the land, and so, or, or spying it out, and then they come back, and then two of them bring a favorable report, and, two, and the other ten bring a, um, a, a not-so-good report. And so I don't want to elaborate too much on that particular story in this particular parasha. Maybe in one, um, in, in one of these years when I rewrite my parashot um, and I focus on different aspects, I'll hit that. But I don't want to elaborate too much of it here in our commentary at the parashat Shlachacha. I do want to, again, bring out the highlights uh, of the story. And again, the section on the spies 
av in my opinion, avidly demonstrates the awesome mercy and judgment of our Heavenly Abba. In fact, in fact, quite often as we're studying through the Torah, we're going to find these two dual themes running side by side. Often we'll find simultaneous judgment and mercy step flowing from God. Um, mercy for anyone who will repent and uh, um, turn to God and judgment for those who um, reject God in His ways. And ultimately, that is the uh, dilemma facing all of mankind today, right? We live in the 21st century, where the mercy of God has been demonstrated by God the Father sending His Son on our behalf to die for sinful man. That's the mercy of God being extended to men um, to, to avoid what is uh, going to befall mankind if he uh, resists. And so what will befall all of mankind if they resist the mercy of God? Well, judgment, of course. So we see the dual themes of mercy and judgment side by side. Opponents of the grace of the Old Testament. You've heard of people, you've, you've heard this taught. Many of you listening to my podcasts uh, have come from or are still in church circles. And you hear this sometimes where uh, people will say, in the, in the Old Testament there was no grace. Grace was not given until Yeshua came. In the Old Testament... God was just a, a, a God of judgment, but now that we're in the New Testament, we experience the mercy of God. Well, people who are opponents of the grace of the Old Testament are hard-pressed to explain away, for instance, the merciful actions of Adonai in this parasha, in chapter uh, 15, verses 5 through 20. What do I mean? Well, if you'll read the story, you'll see that surely the disobedient, unfaithful bunch of them deserved Hashem's punishment. Right? Yet, and if you'll recall, Moshe pleads with them. And at Moshe's pleading, he pleads with God on their behalf. Hashem stayed his severe ruling and instead mercifully gave them an object lesson that they should never forget. Right? And uh, in fact, the rest of the Torah would draw from this event for the successive generations to witness. Indeed, that it was Hashem's purpose for treating them thusly. Um, let's, in fact, pick up a quote from uh, the Apostolic Scriptures in... Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Let's read that quote. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. End quote. Now, we could elaborate on the details of that, and I may do it in a different commentary, but the really sad part about this incident where they get judged and have to wander around the desert is that it's the very same adult generation that wanders in the desert and drops in the sand. They're the same people that witnessed the wonders of Egypt, of which Hashem is speaking about here, right? These were the very same individuals that um, came, you know, that, that, that if we can understand uh, just from a normative reading of the text, they were there in Egypt when the ten plagues took place, where they saw God protecting them from the Pharaoh and actually um, pulled them out of that bondage situation, right? These are the same people who, who crossed through the desert, got to the Red Sea, 
God opens up the waters. They cross through on dry ground. The Pharaoh's pursue, the Pharaoh's armies pursue, and God drowns the Pharaoh and his armies. These are the same people who um, had the manna given to them in the wilderness. These are the same people who had the quail, the same people who saw the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. These are the same people who, who interacted, uh, as it were, with the Shekhinah. The very same individual saw the fiery law which came for, or went forth at Mount Sinai. The very same crowd was familiar with these things. Now, concerning these people, these are the ones that God speaks of that says, you know what? Look, go back and look at the Pasuk again. Uh, the quote, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. How sad that they could have that kind of, um, as it were, theophany, and still yet doubt the providence and the mercy of God. May we learn from this experience and understand that God is a merciful God. And we live in a day and age where we, I, I don't know about you, I've not seen any, any oceans open up lately. Um, I haven't seen any full-blown Class A miracles like the ones... Uh, that, that are described in the Torah. <clears throat> and yet, the requirement to have faith in God has not changed. Concerning obedience and disobedience, let me quote a contemporary rabbi. Uh, again, one of my favorites, uh, Rabbi Aaron Tendler of Torah.org yes, Torah and Project Genesis. Um, you can look at the footnote at the bottom of page 2 and you'll see the quote that I'm going to lift here. He had to say this about this particular incident that I'm describing. All right, quote, the ability to do something will be severely limited by the consequences of that action. If the consequences are known and believed, every parent and teacher knows that discipline is in direct proportion to the believability of his or her threats. In other words, he goes on to elaborate, do as you have instruct I'm sorry, do as you have threatened to do, and they will believe and listen to your instructions. Do not do as you threaten to do, and they will not believe and they will not listen. He goes on to say, The angels have free will to either listen or not listen to God, but they also know the absolute truth of the doctrine of consequences. God does and will reward and punish. For the angels, it is as willful as not... I'm sorry, let me say that again. For the angels, it is as willful as our not putting our hands in fire. We know that there will be a consequence, and therefore we will not do it. The angels also know there will be consequences, good or bad, and therefore they do God's will. Finally, he goes on to say, quote, Believing that our actions have consequences is the most powerful motivator possible. If every action had an immediate reward or punishment, our free will would cease to exist. We would only do as he commanded and we would never transgress his wishes. Because God does not immediately reward and punish, we have the freedom to decide whether we will or will not believe in his consequences. End quote. It's a very valuable lesson. May we be strengthened in our walk with God and that we would continue to choose his ways. And as concerning Israel in our passage, despite the dire warning from Hashem, it's a shame that the people remorsefully feel that it is their duty to correct their wrongs. They... They foolishly attempt to instead take the land by force. This is a lesson where God says, you know what? Stay when I tell you to stay and move when I tell you to move. 
and the people don't get it. They stay when God said move, and then the next day they say, oh, we're sorry, we did the wrong thing, we'll move. So they try and go in and take the land, and God says, no, the window of opportunity is closed. I'm going to teach you a lesson. And so he allows them to go in and get slaughtered. And so they're met with disaster and disappointment. I want you to read chapter 14, verse 39 through 45 to see what happens there. They say, hey, yeah, we can take it, we can take it. And they go up and they try and take it. And God says, you can't do it without me. Our lesson, again, is painfully clear. Listen up. Father really does know best. You, you remember, that you recall the old uh, TV show, Father Knows Best? He really does know best. And this time I'm referring to our Heavenly Father. Sometimes our impatience falsely motivates us to, quote-unquote, jump ahead of the program, as it were, when we're told to wait. Or, it, the reverse happens. Sometimes we get, quote-unquote, cold feet when the Lord is motivating us to action instead. And unfortunately, Am Yisrael displayed both of these disappointing human qualities here for us in our current parasha providing us with a lesson today. As such, we have yet but to learn how to go when God says go and to stay put when God says stay put. Amen? Amen. I hope that um, we are uh, seeking to strengthen our relationship with our Heavenly Father by studying the passages and asking ourselves, asking the Spirit to reveal to us, Father, where do I fall short in serving you? What is it that I need to learn about myself so that I can continue to learn how to yield to your Spirit who has been placed within me, not only to secure the promises that you're giving to me as a son or a daughter, but that is to save me, but the Spirit has been given to me freely so that I can be conformed into the image of the Son of God Himself, Yeshua the Messiah. Father, help me to see my faults and to see my weaknesses so that I can learn to lean on You and strengthen my walk with You. Father, I want to be pleasing to You. I want to do Your will. I want to walk into Your ways and be a witness for You. Help me to be that kind of child. That's a good prayer to pray. Let's move a little further into my commentary. This next section is entitled, Shabbat Violation. In chapter 15, verses 32 through 36, we find the Torah's first mention of a Sabbath violator and the capital punishment that goes along with such contravention. Now, um, many a reader has pondered, people who read my commentaries and send in their questions. They ask often, quote, Why such a steep punishment for violating the Shabbat? Well, allow me to midrash, okay? Allow me to uh, give you maybe my reason. In other words, we're going to try and answer the question uh, a little bit. You know, let me just back up and say it this way. If you, if you want to get an idea of how God feels about which commands are weightier and which commands are lighter, a good clue is to look at the penal codes. Look at the punishments associated with the certain prohibitions that God gives or the, the violations of commandments. You know, for instance, sometimes God says, if you do thus and such, you are unclean for a day. Or, if you do thus and such, you are um, to bring a sacrifice for your violation or you have to make um, restitution um, 
uh, for for the things that that you wronged. You know, go go right the wrongs. Go to your neighbor and 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 uh, uh, pay him back. So there are times when we have these things going on. But what's scary to us is as we read the Torah, we find explicit times when God says, if you do thus and such, and of course, every time he says, if you do thus and such, it's typically couched in the language of repeat offender. God rarely just punishes someone the first time they break or violate a command. It's very rare. God usually is out for the repeat offender. His mercy and grace is as strong today as it was then and vice versa. It's as strong then as it is today and vice versa. So what we're talking about are repeat offenders, people who continually violate God's commandments in, um, in, in just blatant disobedience, as if to say they're thumbing their nose at God, saying, I either challenge you to punish me, I, 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 uh, I dare you to punish me, or they are just acknowledging their lack of faith in God. Either way, what becomes scary to us is knowing that God assigns the death penalty to certain commandment violations. And the Shabbat breaking is one of those commandments. If we can take this lesson at face value, then it will help us to understand the importance that God places on keeping and maintaining Sabbath observance. So, it is with that introduction that I want to attempt to answer the question, why would God ultimately kill someone over the negligence, supposedly, ostensibly, of a worship day? Are worship days that important? As we study the Bible, the Torah, we find that it helps to paint a picture of work and rest, slavery and freedom, which spiritually amounts to life and death. Now, how so? Well, let's look in the Renewed Covenant book of Galatians, or um, the New Testament. Rav Shaul tells us, quote, Don't delude yourselves. No one makes a fool of God. A person reaps what he sows. Those who keep sowing in the field of their old nature in order to meet its demands will eventually reap ruin. But those who keep sowing in the field of the Spirit will reap from the Spirit everlasting life. So let us not grow weary of doing what is good, for if we don't give up, we will in due time reap the harvest. Therefore, as the opportunity arises, let us do what is good to everyone, and especially to the family of those who are trustingly faithful. End quote. That's Galatians 6, verse 7 through 10. Now, in the better half of the, uh, the, actually the better first half of Leviticus chapter 25, we find that harvest language is used. And that's, of course, because the Moedim um, uh, that God gave to Israel uh, are designed to be understood within the agricultural society that they would live in. Ancient Israel was an, a, a, an agriculturally driven piece of real estate, and, and, and in many ways still is that way. And in Leviticus chapter 25, we, we find this harvest language as well. Um, we've got sowing and reaping, working and resting according to faith. And um, to leave the ground unplowed for an entire year, like God was asking them to do in the, um, in the, uh, uh, the Shemitah year, you remember on the, um, they were, the I'm sorry, not the Shemitah, the Yovel. Well, you know what? Let me go. Let me turn there. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling in two different concepts, and I'm not sure which one I want to go for. Both the Shemitah and the Yovel are 
Sabbath concepts, but I, I, I don't want to hit both of them. Let me see which one I want to talk about. In Leviticus chapter 25, this is Parashat uh, Bahar. starts out, Adonai spoke to Moshe in Mount Sinai. He said, tell the people of Israel, when you enter the land I'm giving you, the land itself is to observe a Sabbath rest for Adonai. Six years you will sow your field. Six years. But the seventh year will be a Shabbat of complete rest. The land, uh, a rest for the land, a Shabbat for Adonai. You will neither sow your field nor prune your grapevines. You are not to harvest what grows by itself from the seeds left by your previous harvest. And you are not to gather the grapes of your unintended vine. It is to be a year of complete rest for the land. So this is the, um, this is the Shemitah, where we have a, uh, a resting of the land. The land itself gets to rest. And... Um, what ends up happening is that Israel, during the rest years, they are forced, as it were, to rely on God's providence. So, to leave the ground unplowed for an entire year requires faith. And that's what God's, of course, trying to teach his children. Now, again, we're talking about an agriculturally active piece of real estate um, where people had to work the land to, 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 to in fact, live, uh, you know, to survive. We're not talking about today where people live in modern apartments and houses in suburbia where working the land is, is, is you know, doesn't require, well, people don't work the land where they live. I mean, I live in an apartment and there's no land to work. In fact, to be sure, I'm not even allowed to plant a garden in my own apartment. So, uh, you know, there's no land to work. And so, so the principle there is not as easily felt as it would be if I lived in, say, ancient Israel or even modern day Israel uh, where... Um, where there was a lot of land that I had to uh, take care of, so what we end up what ends up happening is um, we take this Sabbath principle that's given to us, working the land for six years and then letting it rest for that one year. That's a Sabbath rest. And then if you remember, there was a an incident in the Torah where the guilty man was found gathering wood on the day meant for resting. Right, the guilty man is found gathering wood. Let's turn to that real quick. Now that's um, is that in this Torah portion? Why? Yes, it is in this. I'm sorry, I uh, I read it and then I, I I was thinking about the incident where God said, "I'm going to give you um, manna. Uh, or I'm going to give you provision uh, twice as much on Friday, so don't go gather." Uh, and I was getting that cross-reference with this particular Torah portion. Here's what ends up happening when I'm studying for these um, commentaries: is I, I uh, you know, I have computer-assisted software that helps me look up, like say, a, a, a topic like Sabbath, and I pull all the all the verses together, and then I start looking through them and and uh, determining what I want to teach on. And um, and then when I go to teach, sometimes I can't remember which reference goes where, so I apologize. It is, in fact, in this particular Torah portion. It's Numbers chapter 15, starting in verse 32. It says, While the people of Israel were in the desert, they found a man gathering wood on Shabbat. You know, you think, no big deal, he's gathering wood. But what if he were a wood salesman, and he was trying to make a living, trying to earn an extra bonus? You remember, God had already given them the Sabbath day principles, so he has no excuse. This is post-Sinai. So, with that in mind, we got the guilty man. He's gathering wood on the day meant for resting. Why is he working? Again, maybe he's, he's going to pick up the wood to sell it. We, we, we usually get the impression that maybe it was a cold day and he was maybe just gathering wood because he uh, forgot to gather wood and he wants to build a fire to keep himself warm. 
I think if that were the case, that Hashem would probably had not um, given the object lesson the way he did. Because if you go back and read the rest of the story, it's, it's not a short, it's not a, it's not a long story. So let me just read it for you. Um, they found a man gathering wood on Shabbat. Verse thirty-three. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moshe, Aharon, and the whole congregation. They kept him in custody, but it, because it had not yet been decided what to do to him. Uh, then Adonai said to Moshe, this man must be put to death. Notice, death penalty. The entire community is to stone him to death outside the camp. And look at verse 36 of chapter uh, 15. This is probably the reason why many people say that there's no grace in the Old Testament. Look at verse 36. So the whole community brought him outside the camp and threw stones at him until he died, as Adonai had ordered Moshe. God kills him for gathering wood on the Sabbath. Now, you and I reading the story, we've got to understand that the, the narrative that we have is just a thimbleful, of the, a thimbleful of the information that is really, really there. For instance, we know that when we read the stories of Yeshua, that there's a lot more to the story than what we're reading. John seems to allude to this, I believe it was John, where he talks about how that if... Um, if everything that Yeshua had done, you know, miraculous, uh, the, the healings and such, if they were written down, that, that the entire world could not contain the books um, that would require... To, and I think that's hyperbole myself. But it's trying to teach a principle that Yeshua's entire life was, was uh, just filled with, with good works and healings and, and, and uh, blessing people and, and providing for their needs and things like that. However, when it comes to the story that we read about in the Tanakh, I also think that the same principle is in effect. We don't have enti the entire story given to us. For instance, give me an example. In the story with uh, David and Bathsheba, right? David sees a woman. The, the story basically describes that David's out on his porch one day. He looks across his porch and he, or maybe he's out on his rooftop or something that effect, he looks across and he sees a, a woman sunbathing, as it were. She's she's naked. It's it's bath it's you know it's Bathsheba, Bathsheba. He sees her and he decides that he wants her, so he goes over and he takes her. You know she's not his wife, and plus he already has a wife, so he commits adultery with a woman. Well, you men and and you women, you've probably already figured out that David surely he's the king and he's a man after God's own heart. Surely he not, did not just fall in one day. There, I, I don't think it's plausible that he just looked across the courtyard, saw beautiful women, and, and in that weakened moment, he just lost all self-control. I don't think it was that. I think there's a lot more to the story. It seems to me that what's probably going on is that David had already, at this point in time, had a problem with lust. And he was probably already acting out when it comes to uh, this habit of lust. you um, Again, uh, you, the adult audience of, of my listeners understand what I'm talking about. I'm trying not to be graphic. But most likely that's why, why he was able to fall the way he did because he had already set himself up for failure, as it were. He had already um, um, built the foundation of failure by uh, uh, um, feeding his flesh. And in doing so, when the moment came and the opportunity presented itself, rather than making the right choice, he made the wrong choice. And he did, in fact, pay for that for the rest of his life with the, uh, the, uh, the turmoil that plagued his family from that point forward. So, um, my point is this. We read this story of the man gathering on Shabbat. And it says, the people found a man. Look at the way the narrative is written again. It says, while the people of Israel were in the desert... Um, 
they found a man gathering wood on Shabbat. They find a man gathering wood on Shabbat, they take him to Moshe, and then they stone him according to God's command. Sounds like we're not hearing the entire story. I bet you, I'd be willing to bet, that what was really going on is this man had probably been gathering on the Shabbat and doing all kinds of other workings on the Shabbat for quite a while, and this time he got caught. And since he got caught, since he was a repeat offender, like I mentioned earlier, God felt fit, uh, saw fit to maybe use him as an example, and, and um, he became, what, as it were, an object lesson. Kind of like Ananias and Sapphira in the Apostolic Scriptures, where they came, became the object lesson for the community around them, that you best not lie to the Holy Spirit. So, with that background in mind, it's probably better to understand that Sabbath violation, in this particular case, was a repeat offense. Again, our God is not a merciless manslayer, ready to strike us down the moment we step out of his will or step into disobedience. He is all about forgiveness. He's all about restitution. He's all about um, reconciliation and bringing us back into a right relationship with him, which is why he extends mercy over and over and over again. So, We've got a man who was guilty on, um, on the Sabbath by uh, going out and gathering sticks. Today, if we will come full circle and think about it in this way, today our faith lies in the fact that we have rested from our labors of self-righteousness, no matter what category they fall into. If we think about the principle of Sabbath versus working, Sabbath is a picture of resting in the provision and the grace provided by God. God says, six days I've provided for you to work. Six days I've provided for you to labor, to, to uh, strive to, um, to get that which you need and to get that which you want. You know, many people work very hard not because they... They need to work. You've heard the old saying, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. That's not true for everybody. Some people have big wants, and they have big toys in mind for that paycheck that they bring home. So God says, you know, that's fine. Six days, I've allotted you six days. I don't believe he's commanding us to work six full days. Rather, he's allotted us six days. If you work one of those six or all six of the six, go ahead, God says, knock yourself out. You can work for six days. However, I've given you the Sabbath day as a day to cease from working. Lo malacha ta'asu. Don't do any work. No work is to be found among you. This is what we find in the Bible. And it becomes a principle that teaches us a very important spiritual lesson. So that's where we have to make the connection. Our faith today lies in the fact that we have rested from our labors of self-righteousness. Anything that we offer up to God which does not conform to God's method of righteousness, ultimately is to be defined as self-righteousness, whether it's working to please God or to be accepted by God, whether it's offering up an identity to God like first century Israel was doing, or it's, again, a, a, a merit theology where we suppose that we can earn our way into God's presence. Nothing works outside of God's genuine method for um, reckoning a person as righteous. It is by grace through faith that we are saved. It's through grace by faith or by grace through faith. God extends grace to us and our faith grabs a hold of that which God extends towards us, namely the sacrifice of His Son Yeshua. But think about it. Before our faith in Messiah, 
What did we do? Whether we realized it or not, we worked year after year to meet our own needs. That's right. We looked out for number one. We didn't trust in God's provision. We trusted in our, the works of our own hands. And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the fruit of your own labor. But that's not what I'm talking about. Our harvest, if you think about it, if we sought, if we seek to meet our own needs, if we ultimately deny or reject God's providence in our lives, then what will end up happening is we will produce a harvest. But because it's a harvest of self-labor, it is ultimately the product of our own hands. And consequently, it is a harvest of death. Because the Torah teaches that only until a person accepts Messiah, then will his works be worth something in God's eyesight. Our works, our self-righteousness, is as filthy rags in God's sight. There is nothing we can do to earn God's favor. God extends grace to us, not because we deserve it, but because it is who He is. It is an extension of His character. So our working to be accepted by God, outside of genuine biblical trust in Messiah, can only result in death. Are you beginning to see the picture now? So now let, we're, getting, we're painting this picture of a Sabbath. To place, let's, let's draw the, converse, the, the reverse or the, the converse of what I just described about self-effort, okay? By um, contrast or by comparison, to place one's faith, to place one's, one's uh, trusting faithfulness in the atoning work of the Messiah, that is to say, don't trust in your own work, but place your trust in the work of of the perfect man from Galilee, if we place our faith in him, then that is tantamount to resting from one's own labors. Are you beginning to see it? To be sure, without the faith of Messiah at work in our lives, we truly do not have a proper concept of Shabbat. To rest the Sabbath is a rest. Whenever you find the Sabbath principle being taught in the scriptures, whether it's the weekly Sabbath or the yearly Sabbath, you know, the Shemitah, or the Yovel, the Jubilee, where we have the rest after the 50, 49 years and then the 50th year, we have a rest there. No matter which rest you are reading about or studying about, the Sabbath rest is a, is a, um, is a word picture. That's the way the Torah teaches us, using pictures. And... The Sabbath, or to rest, is to cease working in our own fields and to begin resting in the fields of the Master. Isn't that wonderful? Do you see how important it is for us to understand the Sabbath principle? Do you also see how important it is for us to understand that God makes the rules? God determines when the Sabbath is to occur, and God determines how we are to observe it. And I'm not just talking about the Sabbath day now. I'm talking about the Sabbath rest that God extends to us via His Son Yeshua, namely salvation. It's an exclusive opportunity. There is only one way to the Father, and it is through the Son. 
God does not allow anyone to approach the Father, to approach himself, except through the mediation of his Son. God says, you want Sabbath rest? You've got to go about it my way. You've got to do things according to my plans. There is no rest outside of my Son's atonement. And so we understand that spiritual principle. Why we can't understand the, the practical application of that spiritual principle when it comes to the Sabbath rest is, is quite frankly beyond me. Why we argue with God and say, you know, it doesn't have to be the seventh day Sabbath. It can be any day, one day. You pick it. Just pick a day to enjoy being with God. That's wrong, people. That's wrong. God makes the rules, and we obey. When we were in the world, remember, we were slaves to sin. Whether we realized it or not, we were slaves to our own passions, our own weaknesses, our own desires. And as if we understand Paul's writings, we were actually enslaved to demons. That's right. We were not even operating under our own pretenses every moment. That's right. We were slaves to the world known as sin. However, in Messiah Yeshua, we have experienced our spiritual jubilee, as it were. Our Yovel is now here. God has released the slaves. That's what the Jubilee year was for. It was the year of release. The shofar was sounded, which is what the word Yovel means. The shofar was sounded, and the and, and those who were indentured slaves, those who had, had uh, uh, um, joined themselves to a master for whatever reason, God said, set them free this year. The year of Jubilee has come when we accept the the gracious offer extended to us through Yeshua. And we and once we accept that, then we are set free as well. We have experienced our spiritual jubilee, our year of release from debt. What's what what's the point? We are no longer slaves to sin. That's my point. We're no longer slaves to our own passions. We're certainly no longer slaves to demon spirits. Our wages are no longer death. You know how the Bible says that the wages of sin is death? If you are working, think about the language. Our wages? Our wages, that's right. Whenever you work, you deserve to get paid. The question is, are you working under your own power? If you are, well then you do deserve to get paid. But unfortunately, your payment is going to be death. So now we're coming full circle. If you work, when God says rest, and I'm, sp and I'm speaking of the spiritual principle of Shabbat, if you work your whole life when God says rest in my son then at the end of life when payment comes death will be given to you you will be forever separated from God if you do not know Yeshua and in that separation that is death so you see the picture here that the Sabbath is painting for us this is my midrash this is how I understand why God I'm answering the question that I posed uh, you know, a while back why God would command that Sabbath violation is a capital offense. Because the principle behind working and resting in God's kingdom is very, very important. And if we as humans do not understand, fail to grasp the central concept of resting in God, then we will forever lack both spiritual understanding as well as practical understanding. There are hundreds of thousands of, there are millions of people in the world today who don't know God, who are going about their lives doing what they think 
they are do that they're supposed to do. That they're doing what they what they've done all their lives. They just work, and they get paid, <laughs> and then they go home and they you know they quote unquote enjoy the the fruits of their labor. Completely impervious to the fact that they are lost and dying and on their way to hell. So it's up to us to explain these principles to them. And what better way to explain this principle to them than to turn to the scriptures and use the very same principles that it has used? Why do we have to try and reinvent the wheel? And so we, the Messianic community, we, the church, we are the ones who are charged with explaining to the world that six days are given for work and that one day is given for rest. And this, on a spiritual sense, speaks of working and resting in the kingdom of God. And if we can explain this principle correctly, then we stand a better chance at witnessing to them. But what ends up happening is, for the last 2,000 years or so, we have decided to mix and match the signs. And we have decided that the Sabbath is not worth investing in. We've decided as a church that Sabbath has been dismissed and that Sunday is the new day. And you know what? We have assigned a new meaning to the new rest day as well. If the Sunday is the new Sabbath, we've stripped it of its resting principle and we've instead assigned it some some ostensible um, uh, importance. And I'm not, I'm not trying to negate the, the resurrection of Yeshua. What I'm trying to say is we have invested into a day something that God himself never invested. And uh, we've we've created our own holy day. And we've mixed and matched the symbols, and we've uprooted God's plan of, of, of uh, teaching us through Torah principles and through um, the word pictures that it gives to us. Shame on us. We've done a bad thing, people. We've done a bad thing. We need to get back to what the Torah says. We are no longer slaves to sin. Our wages are no longer death. We have been set free by the power of the Sabbath rest of the Messiah. What does the Torah say? It says, What the Messiah has freed us for is freedom. Therefore stand firm and don't let yourselves be tied up again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5 verse 1. And again in another place, quote, So there remains a Shabbat keeping for God's people. For the one who has entered God's rest has also rested from his own works, as God did from his. Therefore let us do our best to enter that rest, so that no one will fall short because of the same kind of disobedience. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 9 through 11. And finally, quote, keep my Shabbats and revere my sanctuary. I am Adonai, end quote. That's Leviticus 26, verse 20. The Sabbath principle is very important, and we would do best if we studied it more closely. Amen? Amen. Okay, and now that we have talked about the Sabbath, let's go ahead and call this Part A. It's about 45 minutes into the commentary and a natural place for us to take a break uh, in the uh, discussion. We're going to call this Part A. Stick around for Part B, where we will talk more about Parashat Shlachlecha, and uh, this time we're going to enter into the topic of the talit and the tzitzit, the tassels. The next section we're going to look at is entitled Garment of Praise. Stay tuned. <laughs> 